When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. Those voters elected Schiff, even though he lied. Those voters elected Swalwell, even though he lied to the American public, too. So you know what? I'll respect his voters, too, and they'll serve on committees. But they will not serve on a place that has national security reverence because integrity matters to me. Oh, Kevin. Kevin McCarthy, whose integrity is locked safely in a safe in Mar-a-Lago, kicks two respected Democrats off of the House Intelligence Committee as retribution for dear leader Donald Trump and his House minions. Those two Democrats, Congressman Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell, join me in just a moment. Also tonight, a new lawsuit and new outrage over Governor DeSantis's rejection of AP African-American studies. Because per DeSantis and his administration, learning the truth about black American history lacks educational value. Elijah Edwards, a Florida high school student who very much wanted to take that AP course, is now getting ready to sue DeSantis. And he joins me tonight. Plus, the Ukrainian military gets a big upgrade as the Biden administration agrees to supply them with top of the line battle tanks. What it all means for this nearly almost year-long war. We begin the readout tonight with the Vengeance Caucus. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is making good on his threat to formally block Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from seats on the House Intelligence Committee. But before I tell you his rationale, which, to be clear, is vindictiveness and political retribution, I want to remind you exactly what McCarthy's boss, Marjorie Taylor Greene, did to get expelled from her committee assignments two years ago. In 2018, the QAnon troll liked a Facebook post which read, quote, a bullet to the head would be quicker than removing then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi, which sure made her seem like a danger to the Speaker. And if that wasn't enough, a 2020 congressional campaign Facebook post showed her posing with a military-style rifle alongside photos of Congresswoman Ilan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Rashida Tlaib, with the caption, quote, the squad's worst nightmare. Again, implied threats against members of Congress. Green also posed, posted video of herself harassing and confronting Parkland school shooting survivor David Hogg and agreed with comments that the Sandy Hook school shooting was staged. That was the violent and conspiratorial rhetoric sufficient for the House, including 11 Republicans, to yank her from the committees that she'd been assigned to. But now Kevin McCarthy has, as promised, restored that individual seat on two powerful committees. Same with Arizona Republican Paul Gosar, who was expelled months after Green for posting an anime video depicting him killing Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and attacking President Biden. It just proves how beholden McCarthy is to the far-right dregs of his caucus, that as payback, he's now blocking Congressman Schiff and Swalwell. But to be clear, it's also retribution on behalf of McCarthy's other boss, Donald Trump. 
McCarthy claims Schiff lied about knowing the whistleblower who triggered Trump's first impeachment. Even though a source familiar with the whistleblower told Reuters the whistleblower had not met or spoken with Congressman Schiff. And everything in the whistleblower's complaint was ultimately corroborated in the investigation. As for Swalwell, McCarthy has latched onto a right-wing football, a 2020 Axial story about a suspected Chinese spy who had fundraised for him and several other candidates as a bundler in 2014. Swalwell cut off ties after being alerted by federal investigators. A Washington Post fact check points out that the Axios report that started the fever dream itself never alleges that Swalwell did anything questionable and bluntly notes there is simply no evidence he did anything wrong, despite McCarthy's unverified claims that a classified briefing suggested otherwise. There's also this inconvenient reality. Two other Republican speakers, John Boehner and Paul Ryan, who would have been briefed on the FBI investigation into the woman in question in 2015, did not try to remove Swalwell from this same committee. McCarthy can keep members off the Intelligence Committee unilaterally. He also continues to threaten to strip Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. But that would require a House vote. In a press conference today, the three members stood together, saying it wasn't about any individual committee, but the speaker openly using his authority for retribution. And joining me now are Congressman Adam Schiff and Congressman Eric Swalwell, both of California. Uh, I want to thank um, both of you for being here. And, and Congressman Schiff, I do want to start with you, because in a way, I, I feel like you in Kevin McCarthy's mind committed the greater crime, which was presiding over the impeachment of Donald Trump. And I can't find any legitimate reason why you would not want to be would not be on this committee other than that. Can you? Uh, no, I can't. Uh, I think this is an effort by McCarthy to please the boss down in Mar-a-Lago to uh, excite the right wing base uh, and to deliver payback uh, to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who he is now fully indebted to for his speakership. But, uh, you know, quite separate apart for what he's doing to, to me or to Eric, uh, it does damage to the Intelligence Committee to use it uh, as a political plaything the way that McCarthy is. Uh, the establishment of this new select committee to on, on the supposed weaponization of the federal government, which will receive intelligence briefings, is also going to breed uh, distrust in the intelligence community for Congress, which means that policymakers are not going to get the information they should to protect the country because McCarthy is playing these games to cater to the most extreme elements of his base. You know, and Congressman Swalwell, I mean, you you posted a video. Uh, it's actually, you know, kind of humorously done, but I think it actually makes a quite serious point um, about the, in, the the threats that we know that Christopher Ray, the FBI director, has said are the greatest threats, and that we need more intelligence on. I'm just going to play a little bit of that video now. Sure. Were you arrested trying to overthrow the government on January 6th? Are you facing sleepless nights worried the rule of law will catch up to you? The lawyers at Insurrection LLC are standing by to take your call. We will fight for your right to commit treason without accountability. At Insurrection LLC, we understand it's your right to obstruct justice and plot sedition. And for a limited time only, if you call Insurrection LLC in the next 15 minutes, we'll include a free gas stove. You know, and it, it's, it's a funny video. It's fun to watch. But I think it makes a point that's actually quite serious and quite frightening. That what McCarthy is now, the people he's indebted to, as Congressman Schiff has mentioned, 
are now the people who are going to have access to very important information about our nation's intelligence. Um, they're the people who are going to be able to view things that in some cases might be about them and people that they support uh, and that they supported, um, including those who committed insurrection. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's right, Joy. Uh, and they're turning over the keys of our national security uh, secrets to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who rooted on the rioters on January 6th and goes to the D.C. jail to show solidarity uh, with them and taking uh, Mr. Schiff and myself off the committee. And so, yes, that video uh, is a humorful way uh, to make a point, uh, you know, with everyday Americans that, you know, this is now uh, who's in charge of these committees to obstruct Justice. And I, I just want to make one point about Adam Schiff, uh, because during the first uh, impeachment, during the Russia investigation, as Kevin McCarthy and uh, his leadership team tried to run every play to obstruct the investigation, like sending many of the people depicted in that video into a top secret skiff where they're not allowed to have electronics, where they're not you know, allowed to be unless they're cleared. And, and they barged in there. Adam never flinched. He was a fearless leader throughout that impeachment and that's why they're targeting him. And, and the same with me and Miss Omar. It's the fact that we never flinched and we were fearless uh, in our resolve to hold Donald Trump accountable. So, uh, you know, frankly, does it suck to not be on a committee that does such important work? Yes. It's not about me, though. As Mr. Schiff said, it's about who is now given access you know, to top secret information uh, and what it means to use political vengeance uh, to exact revenge on your political opponents. Right. And I mean, Congresswoman Omar, you know, made that point. You know, she said earlier this morning on uh, with Morning Joe, she said it's going to be really hard moving forward when you have a speaker who was publicly humiliated, who took 15 votes to get elected as speaker, who has ceded so much power to really the most ridiculous members of the caucus and has taken away the seriousness of the conference. She's being uh, potentially if she is pushed off her committees, she would no longer chair an Africa subcommittee. That's really important. But, you know, Congressman Schiff, I think this is kind of the, the thing that ought to worry Americans. The kind of people who um, Kevin McCarthy is giving power to, he's giving Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ronnie Jackson, two ardent conspiracy theorists, seats on a committee to investigate the coronavirus pandemic, where they could essentially pretend to investigate their own conspiracy theory beliefs. You're talking about on the intelligence, the Select Committee on Intelligence, this is some of the most sensitive information that could be given to members of Congress. And this is a person, the speaker, who doesn't take it seriously. I feel like this is a tale of corruption, but it's also, it feels like a national security threat, does it to you? Uh, it certainly does. Uh, you know, this new select committee they've formed, uh, as Eric points out, is really designed to obstruct the Justice Department's work, uh, designed to try to um, allow the committee to be essentially an arm of the Trump defense team uh, to pry into what the Justice Department has uh, and provide it to uh, Donald Trump for his defense. Uh, and, you know, sadly, we've seen this drill before during the Russia and Ukraine investigations. The Republicans on the committee where Eric and I serve were essentially a backdoor to Trump's legal defense. Uh, now they're going to use the front door because they have the committee uh, chairmanship. Uh, but uh, but look, we're going to push back. I think if McCarthy thinks by removing us from the Intelligence Committee that he is some gonna, somehow going to stop us from holding their feet to the fire, he's going to find out just how wrong he is. Uh, and I want to mention, uh, too, uh, about Eric. Um, they're going after him because he is one of the most effective uh, members of our caucus in pushing back and revealing the hypocrisy, the danger that they represent. Uh, so as much as this is about retribution, as much as this undermines, I think, our national security and the institution of the Congress, 
This is also their way of trying to stop people from holding them accountable. We're going to make sure that does not succeed. Well, Congressman Swalwell, you know, we the, the atmosphere in which this is happening is that Donald Trump is the only announced Republican candidate so far for president. He has just been given back access to his Facebook and Instagram um, accounts. He is going to be back on Twitter at a time when we know, based on the January 6th investigation, that he, using social media, posed a national security threat to the country and fomented an insurrection. We're also in a context where we are preparing to aid Ukraine anew with fresh weapons, et cetera, in their fight against Russia's invasion. And you now have people who are on, we're not sure which side of that war they're on. They've spoken in favor of the Russian side on an intelligence committee where I don't know if these are people who are trustworthy with national security information. As you said, they could give that information to Donald Trump and God knows what else. Uh, and Joy, if you recall, uh, during the Russia investigation, uh, there were individuals, a part of our investigation and the impeachment investigation, uh, who were sending uh, packages to Chairman Nunes uh, from Russia. <laughs> so uh, that, that was pointed out during uh, the impeachment uh, proceedings. And so, yes, we are, we are concerned that, uh, you know, there is uh, a sympathy for or a desire to, you know, do Putin's bidding uh, instead of America's. And, and you see more and more people uh, in their conference uh, voting against Ukraine funding or uh, support for Ukraine. And I think that's a part of this corrupt bargain is that, you know, Kevin McCarthy has agreed to defund the troops by $75 billion because many on his side asked for that. He's also going to have a tough time putting together 218 votes to keep Ukraine uh, in the fight, in their fight for freedom, which is our uh, fight for freedom. And to your other point, you know, on uh, Donald Trump going back on Facebook, you know, Adam Schiff has, you know, led uh, many of the efforts to try and uh, raise awareness around what it means to put Donald Trump back on social media, uh, because we know that his words have power and they inspire. And then the leaders in the Republican Party, like Speaker McCarthy, they don't condemn them. And so when they're not condemned, they're a green light and open lane uh, for more violence, uh, you know, to occur. And, and that's what's so concerning and Joe, right if now. I, if I could just add on to that, I Please. think Facebook's decision to reinstate uh, Donald Trump uh, is inexplicable. Uh, it re represents, in, in my view, a total caving in and copping out. Uh, the only motive I can see is a profit motive here. Uh, if you look at what Donald Trump has been posting on his own social media platform, all of that violates Facebook's policies. Uh, he's continuing to give aid and comfort to those who committed acts of insurrection. He's continuing to, to spread the big lie. Uh, and the idea that somehow he would not do that on Facebook when he's doing it on his own platform, uh, to me, um, is, is a tragic decision by a company that is putting its profit above the public interest. They, they have said that they believe that the, that the threat has passed, which seems ludicrous. I do want a, a final question to you, Congressman uh, Schiff. Um, it, it, well, I mean, we are we are actually out of time. I might have to ha have, you, have you guys come back. But I, I do want to ask you very quickly, because you had been critical earlier of the Department of Justice's seeming reluctance to take action. Given the fact that you now have essentially a Trump committee um, on the, you know, Trump essentially running the House again through his supporters like Marjorie Greene and Kevin McCarthy. Do you think that that puts more pressure or should put more pressure on the Department of Justice to take action? Because obviously the threat is still live. 
Well, I don't think the committee itself uh, is a reason for the Justice Department to act or not act. They have plenty of reason to act based on the pure evidence of Donald Trump's complicity in multiple uh, lines of effort to overturn the election. I think multiple violations of federal law. So they should move forward. They pledge to follow the evidence wherever it leads. It has led to Donald Trump. But I do think they need to be aware that this committee is designed to get in their way uh, and they're going to have to be prepared for that. Uh, indeed. Um, Congressman Adam Schiff and Congressman Eric Swalwell, thank you both for being here tonight. And up next on the readout, three high, cheers, three high school students plan to sue Ron DeSantis over his ban of an AP course on African-American history. One of those students joins me next. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Today, civil rights attorney and longtime Floridian Ben Crump gave a stern warning to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, saying he will sue his administration if it continues to block an advanced placement course on African-American studies from being taught in the state's high schools. During the announcement, Crump was joined by the three high school students who would be the lead plaintiffs in the lawsuit. In his latest war against knowledge, DeSantis has rejected the AP's African-American Studies program, saying the course, quote, significantly lacks educational value. But as one of the students observed, plenty of other AP courses remain. Certainly there are other advanced placement histories such as AP European history, AP US history, and AP world history, all predominantly generated towards white people. By lacking an AP dedicated to the ones this country was built off the backs of, is further oppressing a group that has done more for this country than the country has done for them. The legal challenge comes as Florida education reaches dystopian levels. Teachers in Manatee County are now forced to remove or cover unvetted books from classrooms and libraries to avoid felony charges. The College Board, which oversees AP classes, told our show that it would release a new framework for the AP course on February 1st, which happens to be the first day of Black History Month. DeSantis has yet to cancel Black History Month because it violates his Stop Woke Act um, because it would make white children feel bad, which is illegal in Florida. Nor has he banished February itself entirely from our calendar at least not yet.
Joining me now is State Senator Chevron Jones of Florida and Elijah Edwards, one of the three high school students who plans to sue Florida over its rejection of the AP African-American Studies course. And um, uh, thank you both for being here. I do want to name all three students who would be in this lawsuit. It is Elijah Edwards, um, who is here, and thank you for being here. Juliet Heckman, who's a junior, who's taken four AP courses. Three were history-related. Victoria McQueen, who's a junior, who's taken six AP courses. Um, They are both juniors. Uh, Elijah, you're a sophomore. Um, talk um, about this class and what and why you wanted to take it or why you would want to take it. Um, I want to take the class because, I mean, well, first of all, I'm black. You know, that, that was the first reason that I want to take the class. And another reason was recently I've been more. Recently, I've been more open to learning about my history and where I came from and the trials and tribulations that has happened with those that came before me. So I want to take the class so I can have a more in-depth teaching, have more uh, intellectual conversations about the fact of the matter. And let me ask you this question, Elijah, because, you know, Florida law says that they are required to teach African-American studies and they're required to teach something about the history of black people in this country. Do you feel that you've gotten a thorough education in black history so far in school? Um, No, I, I really feel like I haven't. And I feel like what I have learned has been cut short or whitewashed in a sort of way to where they don't give you the full extent of what happened. They only give you part of it. They're trying to like, um, they're trying to make it seem better than it actually was. And, and what do you feel when you see that you can still take art history, you can still take Japanese language and culture, German language and culture, Italian language and culture, and Spanish language and culture, but you can't take African-American history? And you can take European history. Uh, personally, I feel like it's unfair, uh, unjust. I feel like I feel like it shows the blatant racism that's displayed by uh, Governor Ron DeSantis and some other people in power. And I just feel like, honestly, I just feel like it's stupid. Let me bring you in, uh, State Senator Chevron Jones. Thank you for uh, always being available to us. Because, you know, I wanted to hear from this young man, because the, the, the reality is the people who are being hurt by this are not just students, but, predom- but, but in a world where students his age are now predominantly of color. You know, in Florida, white students are about 38, 39 percent of the total. So what Ron DeSantis is essentially saying is that students of color may not even learn about their own history and that white students have to be protected from black history. Um, they've been very clear that they want everything cut out of it, the bell hooks pieces, anything that they don't like politically. They don't like the political stance of Angela Davis. Take her out of the course. What do you make of the college board seeming to kind of cave and saying they're going to come back with a revised curriculum? Well, Joy, it's, it's really unfortunate, but I also want to lift up one fact that you just made mention of, the fact that Elijah uh, and uh, Victoria and Juliet ha- have all come and they've made it clear that not only did uh, they want to take this course, they were prepared to take this course uh, in the next uh, semester. And I also think it's important for us to point out that 60 schools across the country piloted this program 
teachers were actually the ones who made it clear of what this program would be outlined as. There were four different units within this within the curriculum that, mind you, students had already experienced and students were prepared to go through. And lastly, it should be noted that this is an advanced level course that students may opt out of and they they can opt to take opt in or they can opt out of to be able to take to receive the college credit. And the fact that the governor, as we know, continues to go down this route, we've had this conversation before, to where they are trying to shield students from the truth about history. Elijah made it clear, we already are not receiving the right Black history or African-American studies that we should be receiving. And that's been since I've been in school. So why are we continuing to go down this route to lie to students and not give them the opportunity to know the truth about our history and what we have contributed to not just the state of Florida, but also to this country. So Ron DeSantis uh, has claimed that this this course packs a political agenda. Um, but it seems to me that he's being very open about his political agenda, that he does not. He pointed out things like the course talks about abolishing prisons. Um, the course talks about intersectionality. It sounds to me like his political agenda is that students will receive a what he thinks of as a conservative education, a conservative, uh, politically conservative education. D do you get that sense? Well, you know, uh, Joy, to be honest with you, they, they can't backtrack what they said. They said what they said. Maya Angelou says it best. When people do what they do, when they say what they say, believe them the first time. And so we believe them the first time. And they said that African-American studies bought no educational value. And that is what they said. And now they're trying to backtrack and say that they're trying to uh, do away with it because of uh, queer studies. It's because of the, uh, the, uh, uh, the abolishing of prisons. Uh, they're trying to say all these other things because they're trying to backtrack because of the backlash that's coming out. You, you've already showed your hand. You already showed us who you are. There's 22 million people in the state of Florida. 22% of those people are African-American. So our black children, like Elijah, have the potential to continue to learn in a system where they don't see themselves represented in this very system or represented in this state. I, I have to give Elijah the last word on this because I do wonder how it felt for you to hear those words that African-American studies has no value. I wonder just how that felt to you as a young black man, as a kid, as a black kid. Um, honestly, I felt upset. and I felt a little angry because I was like, you need to tell me the people that literally built this country up from the bottom from when we first got here. You mean to tell me that the history of those people aren't imp isn't important? You're saying the, the history of America isn't important because it's not really black history. It's the, it's the history of America. I just yeah. feel like, I just feel like, uh, honestly, he don't know what he's talking about. And well, a lot that he just, we got to like, do something about it. Well, Elijah, I will tell you, um, I did take AP courses in high school, and I think you are very blessed to be able to fight for African-American studies, because when I was in high school a minute ago, uh, they didn't even have an option for African-American studies. It was only European studies. I took European art history AP classes. There was nothing about us in those classes at all. So God bless you for fighting to let kids your age and younger learn the thorough history of Black people in this country and the contributions that are important and do have value. Thank you so much. Uh, State Senator Chevron Jones, as always, and Elijah Edwards, new friend of the show. Thank you.
and still ahead. Former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Admiral James Stavridis is here to fill us in on the West's controversial decision to supply top-of-the-line battle tanks to Ukraine. Stay right there. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. The past 11 months since Russia invaded Ukraine have been particularly brutal for Ukrainian civilians who continue to be the targets of the indiscriminate assault by Russian troops and mercenaries. The war has also exposed the sheer weakness of Putin's military and equipment. It's so bad he's relying on Iran and North Korea to resupply his troops and his private mercenaries, who are equally weak but no less craven and inhumane. As the war rages on, Western allies want to build up Ukraine's armored vehicle capacity ahead of what's expected to be an aggressive spring, uh, aggressive spring offensive by Russian forces. Today, after months of negotiations, President Joe Biden and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz decided to do just that. To liberate their land, they need to be able to counter Russia's evolving tactics and strategy on the battlefield in the very near term. Today, I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine, the equivalent of one Ukrainian battalion. That's what this is about, helping Ukraine defend and protect Ukrainian land. It is not an offensive threat to Russia. Earlier, Chancellor Schultz confirmed that Germany is sending 14 Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. Schultz hesitated making the decision for fear that it could drag Germany closer to conflict with Russia. Germany's approval also clears the way for other European countries to send some of their own German-made Leopard tanks. Experts believe that Ukraine needs roughly 100 Leopard tanks. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky thanked his allies for their pledges and called the decision an important step on the path to victory. Joining me now is retired Admiral James Stavridis, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander and MSNBC Chief International and International Security and Diplomacy Analyst. Always great to have you here, Admiral Stavridis. Can you just give us a sense of the importance of this? I'm going to put up on, on the screen the Leopard 2 tanks that European and NATO countries are sending. And these are all the countries that are sending them from Austria that's sending 56, Canada, 82, Czech Republic. You can go all the way down. Tur Turkey sending 316 plus the Abrams tanks that are coming from the U.S. And we'll just put a picture up of what those two kinds of tanks look like, just so you guys can get a sense of what they visually look like. What's the significance of what can they do to help Ukraine in the war? Yeah, before we dive down to the military tactics, the most important aspect here, I think, Joy, is the way the alliance is standing together 
overcoming some initial disagreements. That's how alliances work. Now everybody is moving forward, getting tanks into this conflict. That's in and of itself a very important psychological blow to the Kremlin because they continue to count somehow on this alliance cracking. I don't think it's going to happen. Tactically speaking, the tanks are important for two very important reasons. Number one, defensively, as you alluded to in that excellent read up front, you've got the spring offensive coming with mobile armor like that. And these things can run almost 50 miles an hour. Um, you can surge that armor to different points and take apart the Russian forces as they attack. And then secondly, Joy, uh, next phase of this, if you concentrate that armor together, it becomes a force that can crunch across the Russian lines. It can drive all the way to the Black Sea, splitting the Russian forces, creating massive logistic headaches for Putin. Hey, it's a bad day in the Kremlin. That's a good thing. And I just want to make sure that I'm clear to let me clarify what I misspoke, that these are the tanks that Europeans have. So they're sending a total of 80, yeah. but this is the stock that they've got. They're not sending everything. Uh, they're sending what they're able uh, to send. The, the fact that it's kind of staggered, it, what is the importance of that? Because it's going to take a while for the U.S. Abrams tanks to get there in the fall, but it looks like some of these European tanks could be there quite soon. So are we now talking about a situation where Ukraine could turn the tide? Maybe by the time we get to the fall and the U.S. Abrams tanks start arriving. Uh, certainly in the land war, we'll come to the air war in a moment, but in the land war, this is potentially pivotal. And it does depend how many tanks ultimately get there and when they get there. My own estimate, looking at the entire picture and having commanded these forces as Supreme Allied Commander at NATO, I was in charge of all those European forces plus the U.S. forces. Um, I think between 100 and 200 main battle tanks will arrive on the fields of Ukraine by April. That's plenty of time to be a very significant component. The question you just asked is the right one, Joy. Will this turn the tide of the entire conflict? I don't think so, because there's another war in play. That's the air war, where we see Putin still controlling the skies by and large. And frankly, I think the next big debate in this war is going to be whether, as we have given tanks, perhaps we should consider combat aircraft as well to help turn the tide in the skies. When we do both those things, I think this war really pivots. Uh, can I just ask you, just as a, as, a, as a military man and somebody who knows this, this world very well, to just comment on the irony, because it does seem like Putin was counting on a vicious winter to break Europe's spirit. And he yeah. assumed that, they, that the Europeans would freeze and beg for oil. Instead, his own oil industry is collapsing under sanctions that have actually been quite effective and are just getting you know, tougher and tougher for his country. His best and brightest are fleeing the country. And it was actually a kind of mild winter, and it looks like the legendary uh, Russian winter didn't, it didn't help him out. <laughs> Indeed. You know, I'm Greek-American, so I'm allowed to use this expression. For Putin, it's a Greek tragedy. And, you know, that distant boom you hear is his head exploding, watching all this unfold in front of him. And oh, by the way, Joy, that's before we add the fact that now Sweden and Finland Two highly capable turnkey modern militaries are going to join the alliance probably this spring. So when you put all that together, 
It's been a bad year for Vladimir Putin, and that's a good thing for NATO and the West and for Ukraine once they get through this patch. Well, Admiral, it is not Sunday, but you can get an amen <laughs> on that. Uh, a bad year for Putin is a good year for the world. Thank you, Admiral James Derides. Much appreciated. And up next, political whiplash as classified documents are found at Mike Pence's home in Indiana. But does all this point to a larger problem of government overclassification? We'll discuss when we come back. Equal treatment in the law is at the very center of American jurisprudence. And uh, earlier this week, I called for that. Uh, I welcomed the decision by Attorney General Garland to appoint a special counsel. Uh, if we have a special counsel reviewing classified materials uh, that uh, were found at Mar-a-Lago, we, we need to have a special counsel in this case. Oh, do you know, Mike? Just two weeks after former Vice President Mike Pence praised the DOJ for appointing a special counsel to investigate President Biden's handling of classified documents, we learned that Pence also had classified material in his home in Indiana. In a situation very similar to Biden, Pence's lawyers conducted a search, found a small number of documents, and quickly turned them over to the DOJ, which gave Republican lawmakers and conservative media who were having the time of their lives owning the libs a headache trying to justify their outrage over one and not the other. In the case of Vice President Mike Pence, he came forward uh, and, and proactively reached out uh, and is following the process. In the case of Joe Biden, uh, he has had classified documents going back to his time in the Senate, where he started serving before I was born. So this is a long-standing national security threat. Mike Pence, and as you noted, he, he is a good friend. He's a good man. He's explained where these came from. That is very different from what Joe Biden has done. Joe Biden has given zero explanation as to how these classified documents got there. I mean, Pence, seriously, yeah. we have this great thing going with Joe. Yeah, yeah. and he just yeah, ruined it. And did. come on, man. At least they were honest about it at the end there on Fox. But while both situations don't come even close to what Donald Trump did, which is withhold more than 300 classified documents, some marked top secret from the National Archives for nearly two years, despite repeated asks and even issuing a subpoena, there may be another issue at play here that goes beyond just Biden and Pence, and that is whether the government system for handling classified documents is broken. According to the AP, this kind of thing is not new. It has been a problem off and on for decades, from presidents to cabinet members and staff across multiple administrations, stretching as far back as Jimmy Carter. It turns out former officials from all levels of government discover they're in possession of classified material and then turn them over to the authorities at least several times a year. And the reason why this keeps happening may have to do with the sheer volume of material that's marked as classified, as well as the casual handling of these documents by officials and staff members. And on top of all of that, the hastiness of presidential transitions. Joining me now is Elizabeth Goitin, a national security law expert at the Brennan Center for Justice. Uh, and Liza, thank you for being here. I mean, Jimmy Carter, I, I just want to read this from the Associated Press. This is from that same Associated Press article. Former President Jimmy Carter found classified materials at his home in Plains, Georgia, on at least one occasion and returned them to the National Archives, according to the same person who spoke of regular occurrences of mishandled documents. The person did not provide details of the timing of the discovery. But as I understand it, I mean, any president, vice president, somebody who's, you know, a senior senator on the Foreign Relations Committee, they all write books. 
They write memoirs. They go and teach high-level college courses. They're using this material, and their researchers are using them. It's not shocking to me <laughs> that many of them have classified material. Is it to you? No, it's not shocking. And it's not just former government officials, it's current ones as well who are using these documents just in the regular course of business, but they may need to work at home, they may have family demands, they may have travel that puts them uh, away from the classified systems and facilities, uh, the secure systems and facilities that they are supposed to use for classified information. And what we are learning from all of this is something that, as you pointed out, we've actually long known, which is that accidental mishandling of classified information, which at least as of now appears to be what happened with President Biden and most likely with former Vice President Pence, is a relatively common occurrence. And that tells us that there is something very wrong with the classification system, that it's not working the way it's supposed to be. And that's really where our focus should be. Do we classify too? Does the government classify too much? Absolutely. And that's a fact, not a theory. Former and current government officials have all acknowledged uh, that anywhere from 50 to 90 percent of classified information could safely be made public. And when you consider that there are roughly 50 million classification decisions made each year, that is just a huge volume of unnecessary secrets. And what that does is it overloads the system. The procedures for protecting classified information are extensive and burdensome. And when you have that much information in the system, there's bound to be some slippage. Busy officials are going to cut corners or simply make mistakes. And is there a material difference? Because I saw the whole butter email scandal as Hillary Clinton working from her home server. She had some things that had a C on them, but she wasn't like retaining national security information. That is what the FBI and the Justice Department eventually found. I find it I know it's difficult for people to see nuance, but it seems to me there's a material difference between that and you're writing a book or you're doing whatever you're working from home and hoarding boxes and boxes of top secret material. And then when the National Archive says, oh, no, this stuff is dangerous to have out there, give it back, not giving it back to the point where they have to actually send the FBI to your house. Do you see these things as materially different? Absolutely. I mean, agencies have protocols in place to address this issue of spillage, which means classified documents ending up in unclassified systems or locations. Uh, And those protocols all emphasize the importance of moving swiftly uh, to uh, reassert controls over the documents and to secure them. And in the case of former Vice President Pence and President Joe Biden, uh, their legal teams discovered the documents and they immediately notified the Department of Justice and turned over all the documents they could find to the National Archives. In the case of Trump, it was the National Archives that discovered the documents were missing. And that began a long saga of trying to wrest these documents uh, from the Trump team uh, to the point that, as you pointed out, the Department of Justice had to issue a subpoena and the Trump team actually failed to comply with that subpoena. There's even some evidence that they deliberately concealed documents. So these are not the same as you said. And and by the way, whataboutism is not a defense to an alleged crime. So we're just going to, you know, you can have fun with it and it's fun on Fox News to do it. But whataboutism ain't a defense. Uh, Elizabeth Goitine, thank you very much. Still to come, Vice President Harris visits California in the wake of the latest mass shootings as we learn more about the victims in Monterey Park. Back after this.
Vice President Kamala Harris has just arrived in California, a state that's dealt with two major mass shootings in the past few days. Today, San Mateo County identified six out of the seven victims of the Half Moon Bay shooting. The vice president is on her way to the scene of the horrific shoot of the other horrific shooting in Monterey Park where she'll meet and offer condolences to the families of the victims. We are just starting to learn more about those victims, many of whom had frequently danced at the Star Ballroom together. Ming Ma, 72 years old, was a longtime dance instructor at the ballroom, who friends and students described as always welcoming and very kind. He was killed trying to protect others by rushing the gunman. 72-year-old Yu Kao, known as Andy, helped protect his longtime dance partner, Shally, when the shooting began. She credits him with saving her life. 68-year-old Valentino Alvero had a passion for ballroom dancing and was known as the life of any party, according to his family. Mei Mei Nan, 65, had been going to the dance studio for years. Her family said in a statement, if you knew her, you knew her warm smile and kindness were contagious. 62-year-old Hong Jian was killed while dancing with her husband. They had been going to the studio together for a decade and were married for 40 years. Sho Jen Yu, 57, was out celebrating the Lunar New Year with friends. She had immigrated here from China in 2010, hoping for a new future for her family. 62-year-old Wen Yu, who immigrated to the U.S. from Taiwan, was in school exploring a second career as a pharmacist. Chia Ling Yao was 76 years old. His son said that he was a happy, fun-loving individual who believed in living life to the fullest. And 70-year-old Dana Tom's family said she loved to dance and was someone who always went out of her way to give to others. 63-year-old Leon Lee and 67-year-old Moi Ung were also among the victims. A GoFundMe has been set up to benefit all the families of the shooting victims. Sorry. And that is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.